So we were an IFR lowest safe. But then I, you know, let's just have a quick look. So I put it up on Fleur, and Fleur had no worries at all. Just see straight through it out to 10 miles. So that was a massive advantage that we had, even by day under the VFR or IFR, depending on what we were. We, we could see right out, and we could navigate no worries at all. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Right, welcome back to episode 84 of the Rotary Wing Show. Joining me once again is Tony Squid Norton. So Tony, or Squid, thanks very much for, for joining us again, mate. Uh, last time you were on, you talked a bit about your experience in, uh, in test flying. So uh, yeah, thanks again for your time. No worries, it's good to be back. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk about uh, pilotage, pilotage FLIR, or forward-looking infrared uh, there today. But one of the last things we touched on, and I guess Back then, it was in January. We were everyone in Australia was talking about uh, bushfires. And since then, we've had floods. Now, obviously, the uh, COVID nineteen is is taking a hit uh, everywhere around the world. So, lots of things have, have changed. But one of the last things you left on the last episode was talking about this concept of the queuing environment in terms of using the best sort of cues for the pilot or the uh, the aircrew at, at a time. That could be. You know, visual, it could be NVGs, and I guess today we're talking about, about FLIR. But do you want to just recap and talk about that concept that you had about the queuing environment? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the all pilots need, you have to have to be able to see to, to, to do what, you, what you've got to do. Now, when uh, when a fixed wing comes in and lands or takes off, it's got a pretty high queuing environment because it's got a beautiful big runway there, and all the queues it needs to keep it straight on the centre line you know, and, and, and safe and actually give it something to, to approach to. Um, so the queuing environment, of course, with rotary wings, is a little bit different because we can be taken off from a runway. We can go to a helipad. The, the queue may just be in the snow, a, a single tuft of grass. But what it has to be able to do is give the pilot, you need to be able to tell the X, Y and, and, the, and the Z axis. You can't tell. That, that full um, uh, range of, of motion, the classic Euler uh, ranges of motion, and of course you can have a CFIT event. And there's been numerous cases, of course, where uh, we've seen, um, uh, recall in, in, in the UK, where they actually crashed three helicopters, uh, all in the same area, because of a, uh, an illusion caused by the queuing environment. Now, the best queuing environment you'll get, um, I, I think, is, is a H, a, a, a rugby goalpost. If you sat there in a helicopter and you had something in, in front of you like that resembled a H or maybe three pillars, you would see all you need to know whether you're drifting left, right, up and down or fore and aft from that uh, from that queue. The worst case, of course, is where you've got nothing else but a blade of grass. And if you talk to um, you know some of the, the, the pilots that have been overseas, particularly flying in the Middle East in the desert where you get a lot of degraded visual conditions, that blade of grass can be the one thing that keeps you um, from uh, becoming a seafood event or actually successfully landing, landing an aircraft. So if you haven't got a high queuing environment, 
then what you need to then start to, to look at, if you're going to design a helicopter to fly in a, in a lower queuing environment, you need to start to look at automation. So the old uh, Robo or uh, uh, Bell 47, without any augmentation other than the pilot, it needs comparatively a higher queuing environment at any one time, particularly in the, in the higher gain uh, manoeuvring, which is like for us, higher gain just means where, where you would find um, more uh, control inputs at any one time, like a slope landing would be a good example for that in, in the rotary wing context. You, you need a, a better queuing environment than something uh, a more heavily stabilised platform like an Augusta Westland 139 or uh, AW109, any of those aircraft that are quite um, quite heavily stabilised. And ultimately, you don't need a queuing environment at all if you have a full auto land system, say something like an NH90 or a Chinook. Uh, they actually have the, the Foxtrot versions and, and some of the, uh, the higher level Blackhawks will actually land it for you. There's a couple of things there. So you talked about that, that football goals or the H. It almost comes back when you're talking about teaching hovering. You know, we often use a fence and the trees behind. So you've you've got that shape in front of you, but then you're also looking beyond it to sort of see how the background is moving, reference that, that shape in front. And I saw a picture recently. They must be doing, it was photos of a, a test with the Osprey and whether it was testing a, a fast roping or something like that. It was to do with how accurately the, the pilot could hold a hover. And it was almost like you're shipping leads where you had two reference boards in front of the pilot and it would give them, you know, you'd line up the two crosses on the on the front board and the back board and that would give you your reference on, on in terms of your cue on climbing, descending or drifting left or right. Yeah. The other yeah, one I think... The, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, with... with yeah, no, no, keep, keep going. Sorry. I was going to say, because no, no, the, the other tie-in with that was if you're hovering for a hoist or something like that on MBGs and, and your reference is a, is a tree, if that's your only reference, you can keep looking, you can almost keep the same side picture, but the aircraft can be moving around in an arc if you're not sort of backing up with multiple cues. So is that something that sort of ties in with what you're talking about as well? Yeah, that's right. You don't have the queuing environment, you won't hold that high gain task. You will be all over the place. And in some cases... And, and um, this will happen uh, quite a bit, particularly that high hoist, that high uh, MBG hoist. MBG seem to always be the problem area. And uh, that high hoist, you will have undetected yaw, undetected um, drift, unless you've got a good head-up display that will, uh, you know, give the cues to the pilot or maybe a heads-down display. Um, yeah, the bad things can happen. And when we got to last time, you, when we left off, you talked about then. I guess having the experience or the equipment or the, or the skills to then switch between different cues, whether it's visual or MVG or what we'll talk about next, I guess is FLIR. And depending on where you're at and what cues you've got, then choosing the, the best source to give you those cues as a, as a pilot. Experience, as in knowing where to look. And, you know, you would always, a, a good MVG instructor will always... I suppose uh, point out the the issues and the and the deficiencies with with night vision goggle flight because it is a, it is a degraded visual condition. But then after a while you'll learn. You know you'll see a pad and you go right. I got to get into there. Well, I'm going to need something to look at the front, so I'm going to approach over here. And you'll hear all those classic uh, CRM non technical skills where the pilot will come in high, uh, has a good cue, drops down, gets a better cueing environment. You get as low as you can. And then, uh, and then you'll hear, oh, can you call me over to the pad? Call me over to where you've got a, got a uh, hoist. Because look, if the cueing environment was good enough, you'd just approach exactly to where you needed to be. But we 
subconsciously are out seeking that that curing environment. Now, one thing you can do as a good good instructor is actually tell people, so uh, you know, like here's what you need to do. These are the things you need to have. And I do remember in the army, one of the first things you'd get into a pattern. The first thing the crew would say to you, and I probably still do, Taipan's a little bit different now because of the automation, but they'd say, "Have you got a good hover reference?" And uh, you might remember that from Huey. Yep. And they say, have you got a good hover reference? And you go, yes, or I haven't. Hey, I need to move. What you're doing is seeking out a queuing environment. You're seeking out the optimum queues for you to be able to do what you need to do. In some cases, that can be looking through the chin bubble. I've done many hoists where I'm looking at a branch off a tree through the chin bubble looking forward and down, which has its own human factors, problems that goes with it. Um, an aircraft like an NH9 or 139 with the auto hover system, that takes that away from you. But you need to... If if one if you can't see it with a Mark One eyeball, so you haven't got an unaided queue, and they, they can be pretty valuable as well, particularly if you're in an urban environment, and you can't see it on MVGs, uh, that's where FLIR comes in and gives you that extra advantage where you can now look um, from an external set of eyes and and, uh, and and gain some sort of queuing environment. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about FLIR then. So forward-looking infrared, when was the first time that you actually used it? Well, I had flown in helicopters that had FLIR where I could see a FLIR image um, projected onto a, onto a multifunctional display or a dedicated display, but that was purely a surveillance FLIR that was sitting, uh, I remember it was on a, on a Huey, UH-1 uh, uh, November, actually, the L212 over in America, and that was, the FLIR pod was mounted on the, on, the, on the skid, and I could see that, and I thought, yeah, you know, if you could fix this thing forward... If worst came to worst and I had no goggles, I could probably fly it like a video game and at least see in front of me. I'd, I'd certainly be able to use it to, to see in front of me. And then, um, of course, along came uh, Taipan, the only one of its type in the world that uh, in the army, particularly fast, where where we the FLIR was part of the system. The aircraft came with the FLIR. The New Zealanders chose not to to use the FLIR. Uh, they well, they didn't actually buy a version with it. Some other nations have taken the, the FLIR off. We, we bought it with the FLIR. And while there's a couple of variants uh, of other helicopters out there now that are starting to really catch on with the pilotage FLIR, the, the Taipan came with it and we looked at it and we go, well, here's, here's a new toy that we know nothing about. Uh, but we turned it on and we had a look and we realised that there's some, there's some big issues um, that, that you need to, or human factors issues that you need to say, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, there, there are things that your brain does um, that when you when you switch between the two sensors. But you know what? We turned it on. We looked at it, and uh, now we're flying around with it. This is like ten years down the track, and it, it is uh, it is definitely. Um, you know, some some nights, uh, you, 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 I don't use the goggles that much at all. I'm probably mostly on floor because that's the one that gives me the queuing environment. We've spoken a bit leading up to this. I guess in, in the MRH uh, or the Type N, it's a, it's a whole system. So you've got the, the kit on the front, you've got a, a screen where you can see it, but then we may as well talk about the, the top aisle helmet now, and then we'll come back to a bit more yep. in the details about you know infrared wavelengths and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, can you take us through what the, the top aisle helmet actually gives you, and then we'll talk about how that works um, with Fleur. Yeah, so unlike... Say a Gentex or a Galley that has uh, has the classic tubed Anvis system. The the, the the top L is a helmet projected sighting system. So that's what it's actually called the HMSD. However, being a Type N, it's not there's no sighting or anything, there's no, no weaponeering uh, that goes with it. But what we do have is the ability for the MVG image 
or the flare image to be projected on the visor directly in front of the pilot. Now that changes things considerably because, well, the first two things that uh, the, the big one for me straight up was the fact that I didn't have these um, heavy goggles anymore and a big battery pack and, and a you know weighted bag with the musculoskeletal problems that come with it. The other thing is uh, with with, uh, with direct view systems is you have it can be depending on uh, how your how your head is shaped, but depending on where those goggles sit, there's quite a, a reduction in peripheral. You literally have the the direct view system in front of you, and 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 your peripheral vision. You sort of got to look around, and uh, anyone who's flown on MVGs will know that you're sort of squinting around. When you want to look to the left, you sort of tilt your head to the right and look as hard to the left as you can, uh, and to take away that that obstruction that's in your face, because it is it is literally an obstruction, although you can see through it. Now, things with a projected sight, the image is in front of you. And if you have a very bright night, you will find your brain will latch onto the, the the biggest image that it can find, or the best image, I should say, not the biggest, but certainly the brightest and the most contrasted image. Your brain will go, yeah, no worries. Uh, that's what I want to look at. So in a uh, urban environment, you know, I tend to find I'm flying more unaided and getting most of my cues unaided, but in front of me is a green bit, so I can see quite nicely, but in the middle is an, is an image enhanced green bit. At any time, with the left pinky on the collective, I can flip between that and flare and, and then look at um, uh, look at it in a, in, a, in a totally different spectral wavelength, but uh, I can fill in the gaps that MVGs naturally have uh, issues with the, the classic image intensifier. There are some uh, areas that it um, that it can't see, and, and you know, if, if you think of it, it's looking around the 625 nanometer wavelength out. Some of them, depending on what generation, out to say 800, but they're custom built to look at the, at the, the ambient light, moonlight, starlight, and amplify the, the spectral emissions that it sees there. So it is an it is exactly it's an image intensifier. Whereas FLIR looks in the thermal range. So when I've got a low moon and I can cast a shadow and I can't see into it with an MVG. And I know there's something there because my map might be telling me or whatever. Uh, I can just quickly flip over to FLIR and have that image. I can see straight through those shadows. But while that all sounds good, there are issues with projected systems, um, depending on where the, where the uh, image intensifier tubes are. So in the top hour case, the image intensifier tubes sit uh, right and left of your ears. So your eyes are actually sitting about uh, an inch and a half further out than what your ears are. So the, the phenomenon there is hyperstereopsis. So in a low altitude situation, so below around about um, 100 feet, uh, your eyes, you, you, you don't really see a huge difference in the image compared to the standard tubed ambus. But what you do see with hyperstereopsis is, uh, well, you have to see it to believe it, actually. Um, you just imagine if your eyes were out on stalks on the side of your head, but when you then flip over to FLIR, you go from a hyper stereo vision, which your brain accommodates for pretty pretty easily, and then you go to a what we would probably say a hyper monocular Q 2D image that your brain now has to render 3D. So you can't flip between the two. Uh, you can, but the dwell time in your in your in your brain is around about two seconds for the average person. Some people take longer. If you fly around a lot on it, you probably find it takes a little bit less. But there are things you, you can't just uh, you just flip like the old predator does, uh, sitting there flipping through all the different spectral wavelengths to to see the, the the best image. Your brain needs time to catch up 
So, Squid, just to summarise that. So, summarise that. What I'm picturing then is when you're on NVGs, you're looking through your clear visor and you're having a separate image for each eye projected onto the clear visor and you're looking through that. So, I imagine that'd be worse for things that are are close to the aircraft rather than further away. I guess if you're looking at a far mountain range, the the difference between your eyes where the NVGs are picking up the vision from would be really tiny. But if you're looking at a branch or something close, you would recognise that difference more. You get a, a a very intense three D illusion, yeah, most definitely. And when things get too close, because the MVGs, you know, had to harmonise them out for a specific point, around about thirty metres in front of the aircraft is where they sort of focus at, just like your own eyes sort of focus. You know, they turn in to focus on things. Around about thirty metres out, anything closer than that starts to become very interesting, very interesting indeed, because you can't, you can see maybe a tree branch with one tube, but not with the other because your eyes are now so far apart. Okay. The last thing you want to do is uh, have people showing one eye because that's the way to get around it. And then with the the FLIR, we're now switching to a single source at the front of the aircraft, and that's what you're saying. You now see the same picture in both eyes uh, because it's coming from the one sensor. But now, again, you're looking from a a completely different place. You're now looking out through a... uh, you know, a sensor on the front of the aircraft. Yeah, that's right. So your your eyes are now offset, not not in a bad way. Uh, you know, so if say with uh, Type N, the flare sits forward and to the centre, and so there's a tiny little bit of uh, flicker between when you look on goggles and then you look at the flare image. The further out you look, and like the higher you are, you don't even notice it. You're literally you're looking down at a road, and you just you just click. Uh, click over to Fleur and, and, and it looks exactly the same. But yeah, there, do, there is a bit of a bit of a, um, uh, I suppose, a bit of a shudder in, in the old brain when you when you then go uh, offsetting it. Uh, but it, is, it isn't that far away. It's, it's central forward. There's probably a metre ahead of you and a metre. Uh, it wouldn't be a metre, but maybe, maybe half a metre below your your actual uh, eye. Very different to Apache, where you could be looking at, and that's the only other Fleur aircraft I can relate to that has a pilotage Fleur. Where the where the actual TADS and the uh, Pimbus system is is significantly ahead of you, and in a tricycle undercarriage aircraft, sorry, a tailwheel aircraft where the nose up, as you turn your head left and right, the the actual Pimbus is, is not tracking left and right. It goes on, a, on an arc uh, rele- relevant to the x-axis of the aircraft, so that takes a bit of getting used to. Uh, with with Type N, that's not there. The difference in the Apache is, and again, I've got the notes here, the, the Nicolas Cage um, Firebirds movie. So for those guys, though, when they're using the, the site on Apache, it's coming in through a tube on one eye. Is that still the case? Yeah, it still is. There's been no real advance uh, on that. I suppose the, the theory is that uh, you need the other eye to look at the cockpit instruments. But, yes, it, one eye, it's the right eye, I believe, from memory that it um, projects into. So anyone that's left eye dominant like myself would have problems flying Apache. But your brain's an amazing thing. It just it uh, just seems to adapt so fast. It, it is... Uh, I suppose the other thing is there is that you have some sort of airframe reference at any time. With a projected system, the airframe reference that you're looking through in the FLIR is no longer there. You have to rely on a very sound HUD and the display, the actual head-up display now has to tell you what the airframe's doing reference to uh, to space and time. And if it doesn't, then you've got yourself some deficiencies in that system. But after millions of dollars of research, 
uh, the scientists actually came up with a, that the best thing you can do is know where your head's pointing because your head's connected to your shoulders, connected to your body, connected to the airframe, and have a uh, conformal or a conformal head-up display pitch ladder, or have a horizon line that's conformal with the horizon. So it doesn't matter where I look around in in the Taipan, the horizon line's always uh, pretty much welded to where the horizon is. Now, how's it so track where I, you're where you're looking? Um, and how do you choose between the two pilots? So it's a magnetic. Um, so with well, because the flares, because there's only one of them. If if we both had uh, the flare image, and I was looking around, and I had the command of the of the actual sighting ball that would make the other person uh, spin right out, probably make them sick. So there's only ever one person at a time on flare. So it's very important with our uh, non-tech skills, our crew resource management, that we know who has the flare. And the, and the flare has a switch that says helmet, line of sight pilot, co-pilot. So that's pretty simple. It's either to the right or it's to the left. So we know at any one time. Um, but the non-flying pilot, whoever's non-flaring, uh, can look in and see the image on the cockpit, uh, MFD as well, if, if they choose to. So that's really handy. But it, it is very important to know who's actually on the what we would call now the sensor of interest. But it makes top hour different to, if you look at the classic, uh, so conflict that a SAR EMS helicopter's flying with now. The guys in the back, guys and girls in the back, same electro-optic system as, as the uh, people up the front, so there's no disparity. Some aircraft now, like so particularly Taipan, now offers three different sets of night vision equipment. Now, remember, FLIR is really not night vision equipment. It's, it's thermal. It operates in the day just as well as it does by night. But it just means that uh, there can be that um, I, I, on FLIR, a lot of times I can see stuff way before anyone on Ambus can see it. Uh, there'll be the, the cooler night or the wet night, particularly yeah, high humidity night up in Darwin, where the FLIR is probably not as good as good as the MVGs, and the guys and girls in the back probably have seen something before. So it's very important to know. We try and build a, a mental picture. You can't just assume someone is seeing something. And it's, it is it is a human factors issue that we're still getting our heads around and trying to, I suppose, risk manage, but still trying to come up with uh, just standard procedures to, to counter that. It's very important to know who's on who's actually on the floor and when they're on it. What about the actual performance itself? So I've got a couple of notes here in terms of IMC, smoke, dust, snow, and things like that. But yeah, so what effects do you actually get then? So if we talk about uh, cloud initially, uh, how much more can you see through cloud? Um, you know, using it for for IF flying, uh, what sort of usage and effects have you seen with that? Yeah, so cloud's an interesting one because it, it attenuates. If you've got a high moisture environment and or cloud, then it really does attenuate the flare signal. So you're not seeing as much thermal. It's more of a blanket out. So it's not all that um, not all that good for seeing through. You certainly couldn't be. Maybe if you're at the bottom of you know, you're going through scuddy conditions and at the bottom of cloud, you might be able to see through, whereas on goggles, you, you probably couldn't, or naked eye, you probably couldn't. Uh, the, I guess, um, where it really uh, shines through at night is, is, uh, is you can actually see the definition of the clouds, whereas when you're flying on ambus, you go, oh, yeah, there's cloud above me. I don't know where it is, but I can see it, just a big green amorphous you know, blob quick look on FLIR and you can see the full 3D outline of the cloud because there are there are heat 
thermal shadows in there, and, and you can see it really, you know, really quite well, and, and very, very easy to judge the distance below cloud. Whereas on goggles, quite often you go, yeah, you don't really know you're in cloud till you see it, till you're actually in it. Um, the flare takes that away. When you look at a dust environment, it really depends, uh, or DVE. Well, we'll talk about dust rather than uh, blowing snow or any of those other obscurants. But if you fly in in dust where the dust cloud is hot on on FLIR, and you kick up the dust, the dust acts like a uh, FLIR jammer. It, it it's hot dust. But if you operate somewhere where the dust when it kicks up is actually quite cool, you can see straight through it. And we found the same with smoke. If, if the smoke is hot because it's coming straight out of the bushfire, you can't see through it. But if the smoke's in the air, you know, on a hazy day, and particularly after those bushfires, where we were getting, uh, we we had uh, some good imagery that that uh, that we captured where we were flying around 2,000 feet, and we were in. I could just make out at 2,000 feet. I could just make out the the trees uh, below me, like as in the I could make out on on the landscape. So we were an IFR lower safe, but then I uh, let's just have a quick look. So I put it up on Fleur, and Fleur had no worries at all. Just see straight through it out to 10 miles. So that was a massive advantage that we had, even by day under the VFR or IFR, depending on what we were. We we could see right out, and we could navigate no worries at all. And now you look at that, and there's absolutely no regulation for for that that particular system. I, I could fly around in heavy smoke. And see exactly where I was going, and see everyone on the ground. But we don't have even the CASA. I mean, the CASA civil uh, industry doesn't have this sort of technology. They don't. They don't have access to you know four or five million dollars worth of flare and helmet mounted sight. And so we're going. Well, well, what are we going to do with this? Are we happy to say I can now? I'm happy to judge using flare alone that I have the required visibility to maintain VFR flight conditions. But I'm well and truly in the goop. There's some videos I'll I'll put on the blog post that goes up with this you know, that I've just grabbed off the, off the web showing, you know, uh, these are ground-based uh, FLIR cameras looking through smoke, but it's incredible. You know, they'll show the basically the lens coming on and off type thing, or the you know before and after, and yeah, it's it's a massive difference. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the one we've got uh, when you look at Top Owl and the FLIR and the combination we've got, they're, they're very early generation. Fleur, so you could go out and get a good mid-range fleur that is absolutely spot on. And that's uh, what you would see in, in systems, say, maybe like the Albert systems, like Bright Night, where they have uh, very, very uh, good good systems. And, and, you know, like if you're flying around bushfires and your MVGs are illuminating that uh, 625 to 645 nanometer range by a factor of, you know, a million times or whatever it is, I think it's actually about 6 million, those things just flare straight out. Uh, whereas the whereas the fluid does not care. Uh, that's uh, one thing you could say. You know, I just go well. It's all about sensor of interest for us, which is the um, which is the actual sensor that I want to use. Well, goggles aren't working too well here. Uh, everyone knows what it's like when you're flying down a road and around the corner comes a truck with uh, a million candle power spotlight in your face, and your goggles just immediately are rendered useless. They just halo out. Well, you just click to flare and all, all is good what about distance like how far is it good out to like and again it's going to depend i guess on the you talking about humidity is one factor but how far out yeah, can you actually see out. with it well once again that's it's all variable the i mean if you if you look at what uh, so the ambus is 
is just intensifying an image. So if the horizon's not visible, you won't see a horizon. But if the horizon is quite uh, warm, so like particularly if you're flying around out in the desert, it's quite interesting if you fly around the desert. Australia heats up a lot, but then at night it cools down. But the thermal imagery with the desert is quite interesting. So I can see the horizon as, as, as far as I... I don't know, uh, whatever the radar horizon is, maybe 30, 40 miles, I can see. Other nights, I won't be able to see uh, 10 feet in front of me. So it is it is very interesting. We're pretty, uh, I suppose, we're catching up with, with how to use it. And, and things like the phenomenon like thermal crossover, where twice a day there is a crossover where it gets, uh, the, the actual heat uh, disparity becomes uh, less in the threshold of the, of the thermal detection capability of the flu, and also you can't see anything. It's like flying through flower. And I've, I've seen it a few nights where I just can't see a thing, and you go, well, I'm not using the flu tonight. But that, that's how we go. We haven't got any rules and regulations for it other than common sense. But you know straight away, if you've got a good image on MVGs and, and nothing on flu, then you're flying on MVGs for, for, that, for that sortie. In terms of the tech... Uh, what are we looking at? So, you know, is there cryogenic cooling involved with a sensor? Uh, you know, it also goes through some sort of computer system. So is there a heap of processing on board or is a lot of it just purely just getting what you see from the sensor into the into the visual system? Uh, what are some of the, the tech side of things? Yeah. So, well, the FLIR really is a, it's just another um, digital camera. There's a whole heap of different detectors out there. But if you want a, a really good image, then you need to remove the noise out of the system. So those ones will be cryogenically cooled. So when you see a FLIR tracking um, a ship and it's off a, a, you know, a search and rescue aircraft, that, those will be, those will be uh, thermally cooled down. But just recently, there's been a lot of, I suppose, uh, technological advances, with, uh, particularly in the hunting game. Uh, so I suppose we're mostly talking about you know, Europeans and, and, and Americans, but the uh, the technology that's now out there with night sites, particularly with gallium arsenide, that's that's the that's the chemical of choice. Because it's, it gets a very good signal to noise ratio, it picks up um, pretty good thermal range, but it doesn't need to be cooled. And obviously, if it's, if you left your, your little uh, gallium arsenide night site out in the sun, that's not going to be as good as, as it is at, at night when it's a bit cooler, but Tech-wise, um, you can either pay a lot of money and get a really good image, or you can pay a little bit less money and, and but still have something that that uh, that ticks the box. And there, there are lots of different generations of flares out there because of that. Uh, it just depends on what you want to what you want to fit. But if the, the joy of the top L system is, there's a video channel that feeds into it, and if you wanted to have flare that was colour, that's that's coming up. Now, gone are the days where the old MVG is just green and various shades or, or white foss or whatever. The FLIR can be uh, now uh, colour as well. So that gives that extra, I suppose, depth of uh, image. It's a little bit like the Predator he saw and he had a colour FLIR. <laughs> he walked around. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, yeah. I keep coming back to the old Predator because that's really the first time I saw FLIR uh, in, the, in the movies, but... Uh, yeah, definitely colour flares are there. And um, and you'll see these systems, they're out there. They're they're ready to go. And I think it'll be another one of those cases where these things will be available and we will fall behind in our ability to regulate and train to them. All right, I'll just fire a couple of, again, just quick questions at you then in terms of um, setup. You, if you look at the ball on the front of, front of an MRH90, I spoke to you offline about this, is 
like when you think of this on Apache, you're thinking that huge ball with multi sensors in it and, and lots and lots of sort of glass panel on it. Whereas mm-hmm. on on this one, the MRH, it's very uh, I don't know if opaque's the right word, but it's you know it's not an obvious window. If you weren't you know if you look at pictures, you can't see where the camera looks through. So can you talk about yeah. the difference there? Yeah, so if you look at the front of the Apache, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an Apache guru. The Apache guys will probably pipe up and go, ah, oh, he's talking rubbish. But uh, if you were to pull that lens off, the first thing you'll see there is there's um, anti-diffraction lenses on it. There's uh, even laser protection um, lenses. But you pull that, that, that big pads off, and underneath that you'll find there's a couple of cameras. So it's, it's really a protective shield. The Pimbus you'll notice on it is that little. That's a little ball that sits higher than the main uh, tads. Is it's sort of now starting to look what the NH90 has got. So the NH90 looks quite quite interesting because it's a little barrel that sits on the front. Without doubt, it has the most precise solid gearing I've ever seen because that thing's exposed directly to the airflow, and I can move my head around and it is within 0.2 of a degree accurate to where I'm looking. And it doesn't shake and it doesn't do anything. You think, wow, that's 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 really good technology uh, that, that's in that system. But yes, you won't see the big light. But if you look, look closely, go to an airshow and have a look, you'll see there's a tiny little, um, the flare aperture is uh, around about maybe, maybe 20, uh, 20 mil across, two centimetres across. But that's all it needs. It's just, a, it's just an iris, I suppose, that's the light in. Um, and uh, one of the big differences, though, it, 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 I have seen a flare where I've actually hit a moth and the moth splattered all over it, and that was the end of the flare for the night. Yeah, right. I've seen some horrible images. Yeah, yeah. But that was a shot in a million. That moth had to hit a, a basically half a 20-cent piece, about a 10-cent piece size hole, and he, well, the moth blew straight into it. I couldn't believe it, but that was the end of it. Couldn't have no more flare. But on the uh, uh, Apaches and, and um, other flare balls, when they got that big... Uh, if you, that, that big big lens, if they fly through and hit you know, like a plague of grasshoppers or whatever, it can be quite um, quite easily overcome. Like it can be quite easily, uh, I suppose, non-task worthy. Yeah, very very soon. Field of view. What sort of angle do you get off the FLIR compared to say MVG or, or just as a as a degrees? The FLIR will look at whatever angle that you ask it to look at with, with its optics. But uh, we would look at, say, the standard MVG image is 38 degrees or 40 degrees, depending on which one they are. We keep the same MVG image in, in the top owl. So literally, the, the big green circle in front of you is no different uh, if you look there, compared to what you would normally see in Ambus. The FLIR, however, we, we, it, instead of being a circular image, it's a rectangular image. And uh, I would say it probably goes at about 60 degrees. I have to go through my tech notes and have a look, but around about 60 degrees, Bit like a, uh, I suppose it's in, um, I wouldn't say 4.3 ratio. It's more of a 16.9. It, it's it's certainly a rectangular. But the interesting thing is it has to contain the head-up display data, so it's definitely bigger than than what the what the uh, image intensifier images. But um, you, you've caught me out. I, I actually don't know the full tech. But you know, you, if you wanted, there's no reason you couldn't have a full panoramic flow. That would cover your whole uh, 210 degree field of view. Yeah, right. And it, and mm. is it rate limited? Like, if you move your head really fast, is is there a delay in it actually spinning to, to track, or is it is it pretty quick? So it's it's quantifiable. We we know what its slew rates are. If I was to look full left and go around full right, I'd have to wait half a second for it to then catch up, and then also find out where I'm looking and just make sure it's looking in exactly the right spot. But if I'm just using a normal normal scan. 
it uh, it is flawless. It, it will will always keep up, even in um, adverse airflow. So when you're coming in pretty you know, fast to a pad. And you, you go, oh, I'm going a bit fast. And so you wake the nose up about 15 degrees nose up and you start to get that, that full, um, I suppose, rate of descent airflow coming up into it. It, it doesn't miss a beat. Actually, that's something I hadn't thought of. So it, if you're pitching up on that in that flare and make it fairly aggressive, you could then be actually looking, still looking down at the pad. Like I'm assuming it, it, it has a elevation change. Yes. Well, it actually looks down, say, for typing, it looks down 85 degrees down. So that's one of the first... Um, it, it, it's always interesting to take people out on that first goggle sortie because they've never seen anything like this. They've come from, you know, well, a civil background or been trained in the military where they've used an amber-style system. And they get in there and all of a sudden they can be in the hover and just looking through their feet. Oh, that's cool. And actually see everything that's going on. Yeah, so it is It is quite interesting. There is no There is no cockpit because the image, remember I said before, your brain will latch on to the bestest and brightest image you can get. You don't even notice there's a cockpit there. It, it is opaque. You, you can see through the FLIR, but you couldn't read an instrument looking through the, the FLIR image through through the visor. It would be too bright for you to do that. Uh, but have no doubt, yeah, you sit there and you look, you just look forward and down, and you can, um, you, your brain though has to be constantly working out what's up and what's down, unless you've got a very good horizon line. In our case, we have a conformal horizon line. The aircraft um, always puts the horizon big green line where the horizon is, whether you can see it or not, you know exactly whether you're up or down. Right. Yes, that is, a, that is an interesting interesting uh, phenomenon. When people say, oh, just, you know, typical goggle crew resource management, call when you're losing sight. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't see how I could. <laughs> yeah, okay, because you can see it all the way down. You don't have to, yeah. Yeah, I have, I have no doubt. But at some stage, you've got to knock it off. And we found that that height is around about 50 feet. Anything below that, and you go between a hyperstereopolis view to a, to a hypermonocular view, your brain takes around about two seconds of dwell where it's sitting there, um, I suppose, re-zeroing. So we don't flick between the two. It's either one or the other. And then FLIR, unless we're fully automated, we won't go below 50 feet. There's no need to. Yeah, Especially gotcha. by that stage, you can see on NVGs. And if you can't, then it's probably, uh, probably not your night for flying, really. Okay, I think probably one of the last questions I've got for you there, in terms of like your, your pre-startup checks and getting going, like, you know, you look at these more complex aircraft and as you add more and more systems, it takes longer and longer to, to start up and get going. Is it simply you just turn a switch on and it works or is there much of a, a pre-flight or a, uh, you know, startup check on it? Yeah, so like everything with, um, with, with the NH90, it's a fully automated machine. It's a black cockpit. It'll tell you if there's something wrong. Otherwise, you turn it on to standby. It takes around about two minutes to cool. And that's even up in, in Townsville. Uh, it'll, it's around about two minutes to three minutes. Um, and, uh, it cools on down. And then by the time, so you turn it on, as soon as you've got AC power on the aircraft, by the time you get to that part of the checklist, it, it's generally good to go and you just do a quick motor because you can manually slew it. Uh, the important thing is, though, with it is not only is there a dwell time between when you go from the, the image intensifier to the FLIR, uh, if the images are vastly different, either in contrast or brightness. That can spook you. That actually does create startle. If you look at the human factors, people like to talk about startle just lately, I've noticed, and, that, and startle it will. So what we do is we sort of uh, we, we, we try and match them. That's hard to do on the apron because there's, most aerodromes are MVG non-friendly. Your goggles have gained down. But what you're trying to do is make that brightness and that contrast look 
the same. So when you when you flick between the two, there's not this huge huge change. But uh, yeah, you know, one of the first things I do as soon as I get outside the circuit area and I'm starting to go in, out into the airspace, I then flick over to Fleur and then I'm reaching down to Brighton. We we'll usually dim it. I find we we over Brighton on on the on start. It's also very important too if you have it too bright, the head-up display image that you would see on Ambus might be washed out because it's too bright. So you've, you've got to make sure you can see the, the HUD on, on both Fleur and, and IT. Awesome. Okay, look, that sounds really, really amazing. I know there's some fancy LiDAR stuff I've seen, uh, again, videos kicking around, but that'll be the, the next sort of step up. But, yeah, the, you know, it's really different kit there to be able to have, you know, three different things, you know, naked eyeball, NVG, and then a, a Fleur image all in front of your eyes to, to switch between. That's uh, some pretty cool technology. It's, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, it is, and uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 actually old technology for It's been around for a while. Putting it in, I suppose, Top Owl uh, and Apache with it, with the two aircraft, with the two systems that enabled the ability of now projectors. But the interesting part about the Top Owl system, particularly with NH90, is that say we have all the we know how much we've got to train. And we know the issues were flying around solely on Fleur. I mean, Apache guy doesn't have an NVG city. Got no choice. But that's that's what they train on. And they know that what the training burden is. We know exactly that, both civil and military industry, how much we've got to train for, for direct view image intensifier systems such as Ambus. Now, Top Out is a mission system that has both. And now we're, we're saying, well, just what do we need to do do we need the people to be able to be experts at flying on um, each system individually, or do we need the person to be able to use that for uh, NVG combined system to be able to go and do the job we've asked them to do? And we think that's the latter. And we're working on that right now to come up with a uh, completely revised training system because you know when we kicked off we didn't know what we didn't know, so we just went down and did what we've always done on Blackhawk and Chinook and Kyla and, and Huey, and we now know hey we've got a We've got a much, uh, it's almost like having a uh, winning lotto ticket, but never really scratching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm stupid uh, analogies, but um, yeah, it, it's there. And, and you know, it, it, it's actually coming up uh, for uh, an upgrade. The, the, the rest of the world's looking at um, synthetic vision systems full stop, where the flares are actually mounted on the outside of the aircraft, and it tracks where your head's looking and shows you what you should be seeing. I saw one. There was a. Yeah, it's like a staring array. So essentially, instead of having a gimbal yes. mount, it'd just yeah. be fixed sensors. And yeah. then again, Constantly because it's all software, looking. yeah, it's all software based. So you, you could have two pilots looking in different sections, and it would just be feeding you. You know, you'd both be looking on, on Fleur in two different directions, and it's just all software based. Yep. Yeah, and the reason they've gone down, of course, is because now the people are using Fleur and going, "Hey, well, look at this! Look at the advantages I now have over MVG." And there's also there's a lot of disadvantages as well, but. Uh, the advantages there, particularly, it, it makes sense to to go down the flare path. But it is a hard, it's a hard tech nut to crack, and it's very expensive. Although, every time you go to an air show, go to to Avalon and have a look, and you'll see the stuff's getting cheaper and more accessible for for the average Joe. Uh, uh, I mean, I good part of being the military is I don't have to pay for anything; it just gets given to me. But if I had to buy something, and and someone said like in the old days where MVGs were like forty thousand dollars a set, you okay? They're no longer that. The flare's coming down as well, and it just makes sense. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to have a look at a good 
flare it there, go to albertsystems.com.au. Have a look at Bright Night. That's um, that's uh, that's one of the interesting systems. And you'll notice I use the word CMOS, which I can never remember what CMOS actually means. But your camera in your phone is a CMOS system, and it just makes sense that you just tell it, hey, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to look at that wavelength. I want to look at this wavelength and and get that uh, gallium arsenide, uh, gallium arsenide, I should say. Uh, sensor going, and, and then you can project. Uh, you, you can take photos, or you can you can look in that in that field of view. So the CMOS seems to be the way to go. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be good if those that tiny little camera that's on my mobile phone can take an 11 megapixel photo? Why can't I just get that and project it into uh, onto a visor? And the answer is, well, you can, and it's coming. And uh, I'd be surprised. Uh, you know, maybe 50, 60 years from now, we're not mandatory using them in cars. Tree, uh, yeah, nuts, heaps of stuff out there. Look, uh, Squid, thank you again. <laughs> You've always got heaps and heaps to, to, to share. And this, again, it's a really different topic, so I thought uh, it'd be great to, to get you on and, and sort of uh, cover that. It might be something people haven't thought about using or won't get a chance to use for, for some time. Yeah, it's been, uh, been good to discuss it. I think this is about the first time anyone's really, I suppose, bothered to talk about it. Uh, you know, and let, just let people know what, um, what sort of capability we've got out there. Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for your time, and uh, I'll catch up again with you soon. Okay. Thanks a lot, Nick. There you go. Hopefully, that's a, a little taste of the future. And again, fingers crossed that some of that technology starts to filter down into other helicopters over time. There are a couple of names we threw around there in the episode. So, just to save any confusion, because I know a few people uh, are listening from different countries. And if you didn't get it from the context, that the MRH-90, or the multi-role helicopter, is the Australian variant of the NH-90 troop-lift helicopter. It has the designator, or the type name, of Taipan, which is a, a poisonous Australian snake. Now, interestingly enough, a bit of history there. So before it was called the Taipan, there was a, a competition, and people got to basically put in different names for what they thought uh, would be a, a good name for the, for the aircraft type as it was coming into service. And so the last thing I remember, and the name that's going to be attached to it, was Whaler. So it's W-A-L-E-R, which was a, a type of, of tough horse that was bred and used by the Australian Light Horse Infantry, or Light Horse Brigade. Um, and basically dates back to the Boer War and, and World War One, and even up into World War Two. And I guess the thinking at the time was that you know, that was the, the mount that soldiers would ride into battle on. At some point, uh, Whaler got scratched and uh, Taipan was put in as the, the name of the aircraft type. Being a, a visual capability, the best way to get an idea of what Squid has been talking about in terms of what the pilot sees is probably to watch some demo videos. It's actually hard finding some still shots of it, but I've collected a couple of videos and put them on the, the blog post for this episode. If you look for episode 84 on rotarywingshow.com, you can see those and get an idea of, of what you can actually see on FLIR versus on night vision goggles and even daytime seeing through the smoke. Thanks again to the small team of supporters helping out with the show through a donation on Patreon. It's really appreciated uh, and it really does help offset some of the costs hosting the audio download. So I won't read the list of names again on this episode, but guys, thank you very much for your support. The world, it's a a bit of a crazy place out there at the moment with COVID-19 disruptions right around the globe. Uh, It's hitting aviation really, really hard. 
So I know a lot of people listening could be doing it pretty tough at the moment. Just remember there's always people out there uh, that you can talk to and be absolutely more than willing to, to have a chat rather than sort of just sitting there and, and having to deal with it and being overloaded or you know, overwhelmed in isolation. So make sure you pick up the phone and have a chat and, and talk to someone. Let's hope we can get it all back on track soon. Schools here in Australia have been shut for a while, so I've actually been home with my kids now for a little over two weeks. And it looks like it'll be another five weeks before our local high schools open back up to actually, you know, all students going back. So I definitely have now a new appreciation for school teachers because I'm finding it really hard work homeschooling a a 10 and a 12-year-old and just keeping them here at the kitchen table during the day with laptops and just keeping them on task and uh, engaged and, and working. So... Uh, it's been a new experience, and if you're in a similar situation, drop me a message so we can commiserate about that together. That's it. Thanks for, for hanging out. Thanks again to Squid for sharing his experiences with Flo, and looking forward to catching up with you next time.